Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Matt Rader, Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Rader is the author of four poetry collections, the most recent titled Desecrations, and a critically acclaimed collection of short stories titled What I Want to Tell Goes Like This. Rader earned an MFA from the U of O's Creative Writing Program in 2008. On November 7th, 2018, he gave a reading at the U of O as guest of the Creative Writing Program. Thanks, Matt, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So first, because it's, it's very important to your writing, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? I grew up in the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island, so it's on the east coast of Vancouver Island, uh, about three hours north of Victoria, which is the capital of BC, uh, on the Salish Sea. Um, my dad was a long-haul trucker, and then he became a crane operator, and my mom was a child protection worker. So we had a kind of blue-collar, working-class uh, life. And how did you wind up becoming a writer? How did you wind up? on that path? Both my parents were readers. I think that, you know, was a big part of it. Even, you know, my dad may have been a blue collar guy, but he was always reading. And uh, I think I wrote my first poem when I was in grade four with my mom. We went for a walk and wrote this poem and it just kind of stuck with me. I went to university. I wanted to be an illustrator. I'd started hmm. in uh, studio art hmm. and I was taking creative writing classes at the same time. And at a certain point, I just decided there was more room for me as a writer to grow than there was for me as a illustrator. Like I could be a passable illustrator, but I might be a better writer if I worked <laughs> at it, you know? Uh, I think anybody who reads your writing would say that you made the right choice. Yeah, thanks. Um, so you, you got your M M MFA here at the University of Oregon. Yeah. Um, do you think there's anything particular that this program taught you as a writer? Uh, or, so, so think. Tell me one thing that you that you think you learned here from from uh, the profs here. I learned. I wanted to learn how to read, read and think when I came here. Like that was actually in my explicit when I wrote my statement. What I wanted to do. I wanted to learn to think better. And um, and Professor Hongo and Doran and uh, Karen Ford was my uh, supervisor, and they taught me to read with a kind of discipline that I had never really had before. And uh, it really changed my life. <laughs> Excellent. So the most recent volume of poetry is called Desecrations. First, tell us about that title. Well, it wasn't, of course, the original title. Uh, we went through a few different uh, possibilities. Originally, it was going to be called Winter Horses, mm. but it, uh, which is the title of one of the poems. And it felt a little bit like, I don't know, I, I could imagine some kind of famous poet having a title, a book called Winter Horses. <laughs> then I wanted to call it Talking Trojan War Blues. Uh, and my editor said he just kept hearing um, Bob Dylan whenever I said that line. <laughs> <laughs> so Desecrations was what we settled on partly because it seems uh, uh, dramatic. And I was interested in the possibilities of creation once something has been removed from a sacred uh, position when you, once things were in ruins to some degree, what what could you make from that? Um, mm -hmm. And and so that's why the title. Interesting, interesting. So the volume begins even before the epigraphs with uh, your adaptation, your translation 
from uh, the first canto of Dante's Inferno. So would you read that poem? You bet. From Dante's Inferno, Canto 1, lines 1 to 18. In the milieu of middle age, life left turned me to a wooded maze, and the good old way forward went AWOL, 404, MIA. Ah, hell, it's tough to say what was what in those savage chiaroscuro trees. So bitter cold a coffin sounded cozy. Just speaking of it now gives me the willies. But all that goes with grace, believe me, comes that way, so I say what I have to say. Can't point to the place where I near kipped in those nasty sticks. I was bushed, blotto, ready to rack out when I strayed. I hit bottom at the bottom of a steep hill that lifted and skirted the valley where all my fear and doubt came to play. Vested and invested with that celestial light we know shows men the sure road the ridge was dressed in fiery clothes. So why, so first of all, what attracted you to that? That I mean, that's, it's, you know, one of the most famous passages from the Inferno. Yeah. And your adaptation or your translation or whatever you want to call it that you've done here, it's so striking. It's so unusual. I mean, there's millions of translations right. of this thing. It sounds so contemporary. The voice is so mm -hmm. of our time. What, what, a, what attracted you to this? To, to, to start this way? Well, maybe it's a kind of desecration of Dante, mm -hmm. uh, for starters. Mm -hmm. uh, my, I had this experience of Dante, and I've, of course, read many different versions of it, and uh, I once took Italian for a couple of years and sort of forced my way to read part of it in Italian. Um, and I had a version of this poem that was running around in my head that was not like any of the ones I ever saw anywhere. Um, and it was kind of an attitude uh, that I intuited about the poem, Dante's poem, that I, don't th that I just hadn't felt in other versions of it. Um, Dante's talking about a very specific age at the beginning of the, and I was at the same age as mm -hmm, Dante mm -hmm. at the time, and so th uh, that was part of it too, is that I was, um, living that part of my life and the other thing you know there are formal aspects but the the contemporary diction I think lets me create rhymes in, in a different way so I was trying to find a way for the poem to sound like it was folding in on itself in the same way that Terzarima does but without um, doing that exact move. And he is the, you know, the, uh, the author of vernacular literature, right. the, f the father of vernacular literature. And it is, it's hard for us to imagine that it was a vernacular poem when right. we read it because it's this holy thing. Yeah. And he, uh, he really takes shots at everybody. Like, I don't know, I just, <laughs> I thought there was an attitude to it that was uh, worth exploring. Yeah. So after that poem in the volume, uh, you have these two epigraphs. The first is from uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. I shall create, if not a note, a whole, if not an overture, a desecration. And the second comes from Frank O'Hara. I am a Hittite in love with a horse. So tell us about those two epigraphs. Why did you choose them? Why did you juxtapose them? Or whatever you want to tell us about them. Well, actually, uh, Professor Ford is the person who introduced me to Gwendolyn Brooks. and. Um, I don't know if I have a lot to say about that particular epigraph, except for that Brooks was somebody whose spirit I wanted to invoke. 
Um, and then that epigraph came after I decided about the title. So I, I was going back through Brooks and found this, and it just mm. seemed, mm. It seemed uh, too appropriate uh, to leave out. Yeah. Um, and then O'Hara, O'Hara is also a character who appears in my uh, collection in a few different places. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was funny, <laughs> and it's a, from a poem uh, uh, called In Memory of My Feelings, mm -hmm. uh, which is the space that I'm moving more and more towards, like w what are feelings, and, um, and there's something just really weird about that, <laughs> that sense, and, and together they have this kind of a nice, nice juxtaposition, I think. And also, uh, you know, living in Canada and being Canadian, having a Canadian publisher, or I mean, this is Penguin, but it's the Cana a Canadian uh, imprint of Penguin. Something about having Americans at the beginning also has a has a kind of tension f on the north of the border that it's hard to explain mm -hmm. here. I think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe less hard to explain these days than it once was. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it would be hard. I think for fellow Canadians to n see why I, I would want to invoke uh, some of, of the American. Uh, poets, although so many Canadians now come to the U.S. to do MFAs too, so there's, uh -huh. a, there's a kind of strange, uh, like when I came it w didn't happen all that often, uh -huh. uh, but in the last 10 years it's happened more and more frequently. I, I think the juxtaposition of uh, Brooks and O'Hara is a great juxtaposition. Just yeah. In general, those two are <laughs> yeah. such amazing poets. So much of your work is firmly located in the places and spaces of Vancouver Island. But Desecration is also an insistently Irish volume. Many of the poems are written about and in response to Irish places and people. Why? What, what, why did Ireland suddenly become so important in this volume? Well, I think I was spellbound by Irish poets for a long time. That was definitely w one of the things. I have an Irish grandmother. Um, and a few things, like some coincidences happened. I, I met a poet from Ireland called John Ennis, who uh, was the Dean of Humanities at the Waterford Institute of Technology, and he was doing these um, anthologies of Canadian and Irish poems, and so we became connected when one of these anthologies came out, and he invited me to his farm. And just to, he said, come, if you come, if you can get to Ireland, you can stay here as long as you want, and we'll look after you. So uh, I did, I was actually working on uh, a much longer prose piece at the time, and I needed some extended time away. And then from that, I made three trips to Ireland in two years, and you know, was spent, went all over the island, and uh, I think I had been so, I'd written so much about Vancouver Island, and thought about Vancouver Island extensively, and even when I was in Oregon, I found it useful to be a little bit, just a little bit away from mm -hmm. Vancouver Island mm -hmm. to get that perspective. And there is a thing about growing up on an island and living in, on an island that um, other islanders share. I know that, uh, folks from Newfoundland or Hawaii that I've worked with, they, they have that sense, and Ireland has that too, right? Um, and so I, f I was really interested in, in what it could do for, what it could show me about Vancouver Island, even though I'm not making those d direct connections. There are some other thoughts I was really, I've been interested for a long time about what it means to be from a place mm -hmm. and to be indigenous to a place. Mm -hmm. And 
in British Columbia, it's mostly unceded territory, so there are no legal treaties or very few legal treaties between the indigenous peoples and the state. Um, and in so this question of how you become indigenous in British Columbia is one kind of thing, but in Ireland, it's a whole other problem. And it was really useful for me to think about uh, that kind of complexity in the Irish context. Mm -hmm. Would you read the poem that's dedicated to John Ennis? It's yes. High Town, Carlstown, Mullingar County, uh, County West. Yeah, this is John's address. <laughs> uh, it's actually where I wrote the poem, the Dante poem too, was uh, walking around his fields. My first day in High Town, we called on the fields where your people seeded and reseeded the grass for centuries. The forge field where your boy hopes to build a new home where horse teams were hayed and reshod on the highway between Dublin and Galway. The hurling field or field for dancing where the long bearded pipers played in the evening with the fiddler down the boreen. And the lone bush field where you've asked your children to leave your remains with the unnamed babies beneath the thorn, the stillborns, aborts, unbaptized. Where your man from Aaron blessed the unmarked graves where your father staggered one night and returned unable to speak. So that poem, like a good number of poems in the volume, is a sonnet. Mm -hmm. It's an unrhymed uh, blank verse sonnet. What is it about that form? I mean, I, I didn't count how many sonnets are in the volume, but yeah, there's, there's a good number. Quite a few, yeah. Um, what, what was it about that form uh, that attracted you? That's a really excellent question. Uh, and I think I might have gone to a certain point with it that I no longer really have a clear answer. Um, I think originally there was a form that I felt con was small enough that I could practice in, like mm -hmm. there's a, spa a space for me to practice. So uh, there's a sonnet in my first book and then they kind of like just multiply as I go through. Um, and then they, by the time I was writing Desecrations, I kind of just ha they were sh had shaped my lyric thought. So anything that was of a certain space um, seemed to find its way into that form. I think also there's a kind of, uh, they, it compresses everything. And so there's always something left over. Mm. Um, and those things tend to make other poems, right? And so you, it's easy to have a serial set of sonnets. and. Uh, and it, that's one of the ways for me to uh, decide how to, how to w which content belongs in which uh, mm -hmm. poem. There's probably a lot more to say. At this point, I'm not even sure what is definitive of a sonnet. Like, there are sonnets of with 16 lines yep. and 11 lines, yep. and in every rhetorical pattern, every metrical pattern. Like, yep. So what makes it a sonnet? I'm not really sure. I, I've been writing these 30 to 33 line poems in tercets that mm -hmm. have like one or two beats a line. And I actually think they're basically sonnets. They're just stretched out, out. but they have that same <laughs> kind of uh, shape. You know, um, it's a set of proportions that you can mix and match uh, in various ways, but they kind of, uh, I know it persists. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So there are other things that persist in the volume. Yes. One of the other things that persist is, is Homer. Yeah. So there's like five or six poems yeah. uh, that are allusions to Homer, that are about the characters in Homer. There's one called Homer. Yeah. Wh wh Where did this come from? Yeah. Wh what's that about? 
I think this might be the influence of Michael Longley. Uh -huh. um, so the uh, Irish poets in general, but Longley in particular, who has um, been for a long time kind of rewriting moments in the uh, Iliad and Odyssey. And, uh, and so, the, it, you know, I, when I first started writing, I wrote about like the places that I lived. And then I wrote about like the things that were around where I lived and the stories from my family. And after a while, it turned out that a lot of my life was literature. And uh, then it seemed only natural. Like I feel like I'm living this life that's through a scrim of literature. So I encounter people and lines from poems and <laughs> arise. Uh, and, and I think that that's what was happening, that like I was reading Longley sort of uh, very seriously for 10 years and then I had to read Homer because in order to be there with Longley I needed to know some of the things he knew um, and then I've just been carrying it around so I think there's some something else too about wanting to draw from as deep a part of Western literature as I could could and try to draw them together in some way mm -hmm. uh, to reach back um, you know, you do, in some of the, the poems that are uh, alluding to the Iliad and the Odyssey, you do a similar thing that you do in that uh, Dante poem, which is to um, colloquialize them or to bring them into the sort of right. diction of our time. Is it a related kind of interest for you to be doing it there as well as with the Dante? I think so. I think there's, I mean, this is something I, I think I learned from Longley. Like, Longley is... In, one of the one of the projects in the oh, is trying to elicit a kind of contemporary emotion from a uh, historical or uh, text. So the, when he's writing about Andromache and Hector, he's he's trying to say something about now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it gives me permission to uh, to look at what's timeless in the in all of those things. So it's less about the form or the language even itself, um, there's something else going on that's timeless. And so when I r adapt the language to a more colloquial, contemporary um, vernacular, then I think I, it's one way of gesturing at, at that, that the, the, the form is not actually the most important part of the poem. Mm. The form is a sort of shape through which we can see something mm -hmm. uh, that persists, that's it's timeless. Well, I, I have to say, when I read the poem that ends with you uh, referring to Achilles and Hector as two psychos, I thought, my God, of course, they're two psychos. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that persists in the volume, as the cover shows, are horses. Yes. There's 10 horse poems in there. And then the final section, or the penultimate section, yeah. is a sort of a prose poem, yeah. uh, which is all about horses, all different yeah. ways of thinking about horses. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, ironically, I've never ridden a horse. <laughs> I've never really been around horses all that much. And uh, I'm not 100% sure how it came about. Uh, my daughters and I used to play this game uh, where we would see these horses when we were driving to school. We lived in a kind of rural part of Vancouver Island at the time, and and we started saying feral equus every time it was this, and it was just a com just a game with children, right? And uh, <laughs> not everybody's game with children. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> you're a poet. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there were other feral feral bovine and <laughs> other things of the of the sort, uh, and and I. Th I think that that 
maybe kind of unlocked his attention to horses mm -hmm. and but they're symbolic and maybe maybe it's that I don't have a relationship to them personally that uh, they could hold this place in the in in this book I mean in in the poem winter horses I like there are these times where I have encountered horses in, mm -hmm. in my life and they do seem kind of mysterious and strange the, the other thing that last long piece that you were writing about um, the, I was interested in the sort of genetic history of horses mm -hmm. and and the idea that the horse originates in the landmass that we call North America and then is absent from this for a few thousand years not very long really uh, and then they sort of come back and uh, across the Atlantic and I was interested in what happens like how do you become um, are these indigenous animals mm -hmm. um, if they originated here have been absent from here like how do we how do we uh, think about that kind of um, I think it's a little bit too on the nose to say genetics is like an indigenous component, but um, but there is something to that. Mm -hmm. then. Um, and so that that was another helpful thing for me in the broader sense of uh, of the book. So you've made it clear repeatedly already um, that place is very important in your in your writing in general. Um, would you mind reading Okanagan nice to us because it's one of the poems that takes that's about the place of right. Vancouver Island. This is actually about um, my new home. I moved to the Okanagan Valley, which is in uh, the central south part of British Columbia. It's the, the very northern end of the the desert that reaches through Washington and all the way down to Mexico. Um, so Okanagan nice is a kind of rock. I was doing something wrong with my life. In the highlands, sunlight outlined the lodgepole pine, making a black absence in the blue sky, the exact shape of a pine. Let me sketch for you the red cedar alone in the lower dark, with its sash of moss woven from pure green filaments of age, or the white aspens swimming in its riffle of sky where the vine maples old Welsh scrawled in gnarled script across the underbrush. Yes, I was doing something wrong with my life. Listen, the foley has forgotten the bird call and your stomach and the horse's breath, but not the brittle tick of leaves falling like sunlight, like someone approaching fast from behind. Everything we need to know is locked up in this folio of rock, I see you reading with your mind. Nothing is too hard when you know how alone you are. It's a beautiful poem. Um, I'm looking at it from across the table, and it kind of looks like a sonnet, but it's <laughs> yeah. too long. It's too many lines, and it's too, the lines are too long. But it has that kind of sonnet quality. It Especially if put next to the other one. <laughs> yeah. it, it does, it does. Uh, let's, we could call it a sonnet. I'm sure somebody can make an argument for it. Well, it's, it, I mean, we didn't, one of the things we didn't talk about about sonnets is love poems. Sure, yes. And it is a kind of a love poem, don't you yeah. think? I mean, I think I'm, uh, my, I was trying to figure out how to live in this new place. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was walking with my daughter. And so she's the one who I see reading the rocks. And the rocks are, they look kind of like a f like pages right mm -hmm. there. Uh, and yeah, we're just, 
I'm not sure what it is that I was doing wrong with my life in the, <laughs> in the poem, but there, were, but there was a, there was something about like not paying attention, you know, and that wanting to pay attention, and this is a poem to uh, invite that attention. So you pay attention to history, both in your poems and also in your fiction, and you're also a fiction writer. And in um, uh, your collection, What I Want to Tell Goes Like This, it sort of moves back and forth between the early 20th century and the present. Mm -hmm. And some of the uh, stories in there are, are really, really grounded in very specific historical events and right. the labor movement of the early 20th century. Um, what, what about that interest? And, and, and why is it that the fiction uh, compelled you in, to really focus on that historical concern? You know, I wrote that book over 10 years. I think I, the earliest stories I wrote before I came to Oregon. So, uh, and I haven't really written fiction since. Um, so I think I was in some ways just learning to write prose. Mm -hmm. and that was part of it, uh, teaching myself that the way this, the book works is not super obvious. And I didn't, I didn't make it obvious, on, but uh, the historical stories take place almost in exactly the same place, like physically as the contemporary stories. Mm. So where there are sort of acts of violence from the past or various kinds of conflict from the past, there is a new story happening now that my sense was that they, that that, that energy remains in the place mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, on some level um, and it has an influence on us. I, I was, I had moved to Vancouver Island um, not long after I went back to Canada and I was living in a town called Cumberland which is a old mining town mm -hmm. in the turn of the century it was it had the largest Chinese population uh, after Vancouver and San Francisco so I was watching all these men go to work in the oil fields and uh, come home and be, you know, be away. And I was thinking about uh, the work that had been done 100 years before, and I wanted to explore that. Well, the, ex the experience of reading the volume and reading those stories, I think uh, it's very interesting that you say that. It's a kind of located in the same place. That's, it's, a, it's a clarifying and powerful way of thinking about it. It's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, we just have about a minute left. So uh, my, I'm just going to ask you the last question, sure. which is, um, have you read anything recently that's inspired you that you'd like to advocate that we should read? You should read The Broken Face by Russell Thornton. Uh, he's a North Vancouver poet. He is probably my favorite Canadian poet. Uh, he was nominated for the Griffin Prize a couple of years ago. He, so he's not uh, unknown, but he's not nearly as well known as he should be. Uh, it's one of those books that is unlike it's uh, once familiar and also unlike anything else that you will find. So Wonderful. Thanks so much for that recommendation. Thank you, Matt, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with the writer Matt Rader, Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. An alumnus of the UO's Creative Writing Program, Rader returned to give a reading on November 7th, 2018. Thanks so much for watching.